reminded of what God has called us to as a church. All right, and so we're in Acts chapter 21, verse 17 to 26, and I'm going to read and follow along as I read. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. And they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law, and they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow, Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may, have, they may shave their heads. Thus, all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. Verse 26, then Paul took the men and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. Let's pray. God, we want you to be magnified. As we do our best to emphasize and to reveal who you are and what your purposes are for us, God, I pray that you would be gracious enough to change us this morning, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. And so last week, um, who was here last week? Who was here? All right. Who was here last week? Who wants to come up and tell us what we covered? I'm, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> nearly got you. Last, <laughs> last week, we looked at Paul's um, last few um, moments of his journey to Jerusalem, um, and we looked at how um, on his journey, several of the people that loved and cared for him tried their best to stop him from going to Jerusalem. Um, this week, um, we have reached a point where Paul has arrived in Jerusalem, and from this time, from this episode of the book of Acts and Paul's time in Jerusalem, several truths emerge. Um, and the first truth 
we're going to discover is this, that God deserves all the glory. God deserves all the glory. Look at verse 17. It says, when we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. And so, as I've said, after many months of travel, Paul and his team finally arrive in Jerusalem. It's been a while since Paul um, was in Jerusalem. And so he's super grateful to be back. And even more grateful um, that he's made it back just in time for the annual Passover festival where Jews gather by the thousands to worship and pray. And so as Paul makes his way through Jerusalem's crowded streets and noisy marketplace. And as he takes in the sights and sounds of this most majestic um, ancient city, um, he cannot help but think about what he knows will happen to him there. On multiple occasions during his journey to Jerusalem, people that know and love him urged him not to go to Jerusalem. And the reason why they were pleading with him not to go to Jerusalem, because they knew and he knew that once he gets to Jerusalem, um, imprisonment and afflictions awaited him. But Paul was certain, okay? He was certain that is where God wanted him. Despite the uncertainty surrounding his time in Jerusalem and the possible dangers ahead, um, he's encouraged by the reception he received when he arrives um, in Jerusalem. Verse 17 lets us know that the Christians in Jerusalem gave him and his team a warm welcome. Look at verse 18. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James and all the elders were present. The following day, Paul and his team meet with the leaders of the church in Jerusalem. Now, this is interesting. Listen carefully. Um, you notice that one of the leaders is named in that particular verse, and his name is James. Um, he's the most prominent member of the leadership team. Um, he's better known as James the Just, because he's a man of exemplary um, piety. In fact, Eusebius, who is a 4th century bishop and church historian, had this to say about James. James's knees were like those of a camel. Thank you. <laughs> because all the time he spent in prayer. What an awesome guy. A man of exemplary piety. A man of prayer. James wasn't only known for how devout he was. He was also best known for being one of Jesus' half-brothers. After lengthy greetings, Paul makes his way to the podium or to the stage or to the platform or wherever the mic is. And with all eyes on him, he clears his throat and begins to share in great detail the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. It's likely that this report included all the cities he had visited. If you've been with us, he's been everywhere, all right, <laughs> around the Mediterranean. And so this thorough report probably included all the cities he had visited, the number of people that became Christians, um, the number of churches that he was involved in starting, and the never-ending waves of opposition he faced. Paul's report of his ministry 
and his missionary journey is impressive. But what we cannot overlook is that he makes it all about God. Look at verse 19 again. It says, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. It wasn't, he related, you know, one by one the things that he had done. It was God had done. He places an emphasis on the fact that everything he's accomplished, everything he's been involved in has been the work of God. He's just been God's instrument to bring about the salvation of the lost and the maturity of those who are saved. This is exactly why, after hearing Paul's update, James and the other leaders respond the way they do. Okay, look at the first part of verse 20. And when they heard it, they what? They glorified God. In doing this, they're acknowledging this. They are acknowledging that everything Paul's been able to accomplish has only been possible because of God. God has been the one behind the conversions. Many people have been saved. God is the one behind it. God has been the one behind the start of new churches. And as we've looked at Acts and we've zeroed in on Paul's life, we've also noticed that he's performed some incredible, extraordinary miracles. And right here, how they're responding is, man, like, yeah, it was awesome that you did this, Paul. But, man, it was God at work through you. And guess what? In the same way, God has been the one behind all that we've been able to achieve as a church here in San Diego. Three years ago, four years ago, there was like 10 of us in a room praying and seeking God and saying to God, God, we want to make a significant impact in this city We want to be a church um, that desires for the lost to be saved and the saved to mature. We want that, God. And so build your church. And since then, we have seen God fulfill his purposes in our church. And everything that has happened, everything that has happened that has some sort of um, eternal significance has been the work of God. It would be stupid and foolish for us to think that the reason why God has done what he's done or we've achieved what we've achieved is because of um, our own um, resources and networking and connections or because, you know, I don't know, we have a pastor that has a British accent. (laughs) It's not. It's all Because of God. So, we just had a look at how God deserves all the glory. Next, as we seek to be a church family or mission with Jesus, we should expect to be misunderstood. If you're making notes, we should expect to be misunderstood. After hearing from Paul, 
the leaders of the church in Jerusalem also, what they do is they update Paul on what's been happening in Jerusalem. Look at um, the last part of verse 20. Okay, it says, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who are, um, have believed. They are all zealous for the Lord, the law. Um, God has not only been at work through Paul on the mission field, uh, he's also been at work among the Jews in Jerusalem. By God's grace, thousands of Jews have become Christians and have not just been passionate about following Jesus. Look what it tells us. They're also very much committed to the law. They're not only passionate about Jesus, they're also passionate about the law of God. All right? Take a note of that, mental note of that. That's important. It's going to be a huge part of where we're going this morning. All right? Yeah? Guys ready? Let's dive back in. All right. As they're telling Paul about God's work among the Jews, okay, the passage doesn't tell us, but I can imagine um, um, Paul's expression. Like he's just shared about all that God has done through him on the mission field. And then they're sharing about all that God has been doing in Jerusalem in kind of the headquarters of where Christianity started and spread. And Paul's listening. And I can just imagine he's got this smile on his face and he just is wanting to explode with praise or something like that. It's an incredible scene. So far, okay, Paul's arrival in Jerusalem has got off to a pretty good start. His fellow Christians, giving him a warm welcome, the leaders of the church have been genuinely blessed by what God has been doing through him among the Gentiles. He's also been greatly encouraged by what God has been doing among the Jewish people in Jerusalem. Paul knows he will encounter opposition. Okay, opposition, stress, <laughs> right? And possible imprisonment, chaos is coming. But at the moment, everything's going well. Okay? So far, so good. But then, the leaders say something that goes and ruins it all. Look at verse 21. And they, so these are the leaders, they've shared all that God has been doing amongst the Jews, and they say in verse 21, and they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. In other words, um, Brother Paul, uh, incredible. Like, what we're hearing is incredible. God is clearly at work. But there's been rumors circulating among the Jewish Christians here in Jerusalem that you've been teaching Jews who live in Gentile cities to neglect the law of Moses. And they say you've been teaching them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our ancient customs. That's what we've been hearing. And we just want to bring it to your attention. At this point, 
I believe Paul's in shock as he listens to these accusations. He, he cannot believe what he's hearing right now. These accusations are false. There's no truth in them whatsoever. As he's been traveling around the Roman world and sharing the gospel, he's never once told a Jewish convert that they must abandon the law of Moses. He's never taught them to disown their Jewish customs. He's been totally misunderstood. Why? Why has Paul been misunderstood? Um, author and pastor Ross Ramsey says, it, says this. He explains why he's been misunderstood. Though Paul did live as a practicing Jew and knew how to fall into Jewish company and customs, it was also true that he spoke up whenever he heard um, about Gentiles, non-Jews, being pressured to take on Jewish customs in order to express their Christianity. Nothing should be added to the finished work of Christ for salvation, he proclaimed. Nothing. Freedom in Christ meant relying on his grace alone for salvation, not on religious traditions or rituals. This right here explains why Paul is this close to being cancelled by the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. This whole cancelling thing, right? Right, it's been around for a while. He's this close to being cancelled by the Jewish um, Christians in Jerusalem. But most importantly, it explains why He's been misunderstood. Listen carefully. Okay, this is so important. First of all, the reason why um, he's been misunderstood is, first of all, um, he, he never went around teaching that Jewish converts have to disown their Jewish customs. In fact, um, he's been telling them they were free to observe the law of Moses if they wanted but what he did teach was this, that non-Jewish Christians, that is Gentile Christians, were not required to take on Jewish customs in order to be saved. Paul taught that circumcision or the observance of any other Jewish law is not needed for non-Jewish Christians to be saved. In fact, Jews and non-Jews all, uh, are all free from the burden of the law because they are saved in the same way. Not by law-keeping, circumcision, or anything else, but by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. This has been Paul's message. It's the gospel message. 
but because he said the law was not needed for salvation, Jewish Christians jumped to conclusions and assumed he was teaching them to disown their Jewish customs. Chuck Swindle, Bible teacher, most of you know him, said this. They twisted his message to characterize him as a blasphemer and an enemy of the Mosaic law. Paul was totally misunderstood. I know you know what it's like to be misunderstood. Being misunderstood is one of the most frustrating things we all experience. Throughout my life, believe it or not, I've been a victim of misunderstanding. Like early on in my marriage, my lovely wife, Elena, assumed I loved lying in the sun on the beach as much as she did. Um, she was so wrong. <laughs> I always tell her, Look, why would I like to just lie in the sun? I'm tanned to the max. I don't need any more. <laughs> Throughout my life, I've been a victim of misunderstanding. Um, I've just remembered many times, people see me and they think I'm like in my 20s or something all the time. And then when they see me again with kids, they just can't, is this the same person? Or, as a black British man um, growing up in London, um, I was misunderstood a lot. When I was lots of times just randomly stopped and searched by the cops, um, most of the time at malls, because they assumed I was there to steal things. Um, when I was actually there to just buy things. No one likes to be misunderstood. It can be lonely and frustrating. Some of you have been misunderstood because of the color of your skin or you've been misunderstood because of your ethnicity. Others of you have been misunderstood because of your weight or your height or your personality. We've all been misunderstood and most of the time, yeah, it's comical, it's fun, but most of the time it sucks. And if you're a Christian, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but you'll be misunderstood. As you strive to follow Jesus in San Diego, um, you will be misunderstood. And if we're Christians, we must accept this fact. People will make all sorts of assumptions and believe all sorts of wrong things about us as soon as they find out we are Christian. Um, we will say something but people and um, culture will hear something completely different. For example, um, we will say God desires a man and a woman to enjoy the beautiful gift of sexual intimacy within the context of a loving and selfless marriage. 
but the culture will misinterpret it and will totally misunderstand it and hear us saying, God hates sex. And anyone who has sex before marriage is going to burn in hell. We will say, God has designed male and female as both equal and different and that these beautiful differences are not contradictions but complements. But some people will hear us say, Christians believe women exist to just have children, wear floral clothes and just be homemakers. You will, as a follower of Jesus, you will be misunderstood. It's a given because if the Apostle Paul was misunderstood, you will too. But most importantly, if Jesus, our Lord and Savior, was misunderstood, you will too. So, we just had a look at the fact that we'll be misunderstood. And before that, we looked at the need for us to give God all the glory. Lastly, as a church family on mission with Jesus, um, we need to do whatever it takes for the sake of the gospel. If you're making notes, we need to do whatever it takes for the gospel. Okay? And so let's get back to our story and unravel all of this. All right? It says, um, so Paul has just discovered Jews in Jerusalem twisted his message to characterize him as a blasphemer and an enemy of the Mosaic law as he stands before the leaders of the church in Jerusalem and as he listens to these accusations he resists the, the urge to defend himself he, he remains silent he doesn't say a word but waits for the leaders to speak and they do look at verse 22 what then is to be done they will certainly hear that you have come. In other words, Brother Paul, we, we have to do something about this. Um, we have to come up with a solution because if these rumors are going to be, because these rumors are going to be a problem, now you're back in Jerusalem. Because if nothing is done about this, Paul, um, it will have a negative effect on the effectiveness of the gospel. People will not only refuse to listen to you, brother Paul, but they will reject your message. And if they reject your message, that means they're rejecting the gospel. And so, Paul, um, um, what should we do? We need to do something about this. We need to figure out a solution. And so, I come up with a solution. Ooh. It's getting interesting now, right? That will counteract the false rumors being spread about his teaching. And so what's the solution they come up with? What's this master plan that will vindicate um, Paul? Look at verse 23. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Okay. First, what they do is they inform Paul that there are four men who are under a vow. Um, the vow being talked about here is known as the Nazarite vow. 
A detailed description of this vow can be found in number six, um, but the overall purpose of the Nazarite vow, 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 was for anyone who wanted to completely dedicate themselves to the Lord for a season. During this season of complete dedication um, to the Lord, they would fast, pray, abstain from alcohol. They'll not be allowed to cut their hair. I know most of you know what that's like, COVID. For months, some of you didn't even cut your hair. So they're not allowed to cut their hair and they're expected to do all they can to avoid being near a dead body. If you read number six, it says that even if, while you're doing this Nazarite vow, even if a relative dies, you can't even go to their funeral. What dedication. At the end of the vow, this is what they have to do. They have to shave off their hair and offer it at the temple And they're also expected to offer a lamb, a ram, a basket of bread, and various grain and drink offerings. This whole Nazarite vow ritual was rewarding for the many people that participated in it. It enhanced their relationship with God. It was incredible. But it was also very expensive to take time off work and to buy all that you know all the animals you know where the lambs and rams for offerings going to come you got to buy them from somewhere and so it was very expensive and because of how expensive the Nazarite vow was James and the leaders suggest the following to Paul look at verse 24 take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. And so since Paul had been away from Jerusalem for so long and probably made himself ceremonially unclean according to the Levitical Code, they suggest that he joins these four men and go through ceremonial cleansing with them. Not only that, but they also advise him to cover the costs incurred by these men because of the Nazarite vow. And what's the point of all of this? The point is that by doing this, they're saying, Paul, people will see that you are not, you have not distanced yourself from your Jewish upbringing and roots. It will be a sign to all that you still respect the Jewish way of life. So that's how the whole purpose you get involved in Nazarite vow. Pay for several guys, get their haircuts, and then this will be evidence that you still, as a Jewish man, take the law of Moses seriously. Look at verse 25. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If this sounds familiar to you, it should. 
Because in Acts 15, the church developed and came up with a council um, in order to to clarify whether Gentiles, non-Jewish Christians, had to observe the law. And so this is a quote from a letter sent to non-Jewish Christians letting them know that they do not need to be concerned with circumcision and many others of the law, but they too have things they need to not do as a result of their newfound faith. They are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, um, from the meat or strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. And so Paul agrees with their recommendation. And so the day after the meeting, Paul does exactly what they advised him to do. And that can be found in verse 26. Paul, the Apostle Paul, was willing to participate in the Nazarite vow. For what reason? For what reason? So that he he can just do what the leaders told him to and impress them? Did he do the Nazarite vow? Because he was like, gosh, I haven't done it for a long time. I might as well participate and this is a good idea. Of course not. We know that he participated in the Nazarite vow for this. For the sake of the gospel. He was even willing to participate in the Nazarite vow at his own expense so that the gospel message he was declaring would not be rejected. Paul was was willing to do whatever it takes for the gospel. If you're like me, okay, like we do whatever it takes to, 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 in our lives to, to achieve things, okay? Um, I wake up really early on Monday mornings so that I can go work out, right? And what do I want to achieve? What do I want to achieve? I want to stay fit and, um, and look amazing. I'm kidding. I can't. I can't. My metabolism so high. I just, it doesn't work. But, like, that's the point. That's why I'm waking up at 6 a.m. I'm doing whatever it takes um, to be healthy, We do whatever it takes to climb up the career ladder and make lots of money. We do whatever it takes to serve our country. We do whatever it takes to promote the policies of our political party. But the question we have to consider this morning is, are we willing to do whatever it takes so that the gospel of Jesus Christ shapes everything we do? What are you willing to do for the sake of the gospel? For the sake of the gospel, are you willing to do life with people that are different from you? When I say do life, it's not just like, yeah, you know, just hang out whenever, but do life. Invite them into your home. Grab coffee with them, not just once, but are you, for the sake of the gospel, willing to do life with people that are different from you? For the sake of the gospel, are you willing to do this? To put to death 
gossip and the many unkind words you say about a brother or sister in Christ behind their back. I'm guilty of this. I find myself just frustrated with certain individuals, and I start telling my wife about them and this, and that is basically gossip. And so are we willing to put to death gossip and their unkind words we say about other people behind their back? For the sake of the gospel, are you willing to ask God to give you the strength and the ability you need to forgive those who have hurt you. The gospel's about God's forgiveness. And when we harbor bitterness and unforgiveness without making any effort to forgive someone who's hurt us, are we living for ourselves or are we living for the gospel? For the sake of the gospel, are you willing to live in harmony and at peace with people that have different political views to you? Oh my gosh, this one's relevant, right? Last year, this year, I can't even remember. I'm confused as to what year we're in, but it's a relevant one, isn't it? In light of our current political climate, there's been so much division, not just in the world, okay, not in our culture, but sadly in the church. And so we have to just take a step back and go, like, who are we living for? Well, why are we here? And if we're here for the sake of the gospel, we must be willing to live in harmony and pursue peace and reconciliation with and do life with people that have different political views to us. For the sake of the gospel, are you willing to prioritize opportunities to gather with other followers of Jesus? If you call yourself a Christian, there should be not just a desire, but a prioritizing of gathering with other Christians on a regular basis. For the sake of the gospel, are you willing to Make career decisions, not based on um, how much money you can make or um, comfort, but based on how you can be on mission with Jesus. For the sake of the gospel, are you willing to do whatever it takes to remain sexually pure before marriage? For the sake of the gospel, are you willing to pursue and invest in transparent, intimate, gospel-centered relationships with other men and women are you wanting to do that put yourself in accountable relationships for the sake of the gospel are you willing to do whatever it takes to know with your mind and experience with your emotions the beauty and power of Jesus so the question is why why is this all necessary Okay, why? Why do we need to make such sacrifices for the gospel? Why should we do whatever it takes so that the gospel is proclaimed and it shapes our lives? This is why. The reason 
you should be willing to do whatever it takes for the gospel. It's because God was willing to do whatever it takes to save you. Before you were conceived in your mother's womb, okay, God made a promise to do whatever it takes to rescue you from the penalty of sin and restore a right relationship with you. And it took the suffering, the death, and resurrection of his only, one and only son, so that you can be lavished with his grace and have a legit relationship with the God of the universe. God was, do, God was willing to do whatever it takes to save you. And so, million dollar question is, are you willing to do whatever it takes for the life of Jesus to be lived through your life. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 19, um, it's what Paul later wrote. He said this, For though I'm free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Okay, if you want a passage to reflect on that um, summarizes everything we've talked about this morning, all right, that is it. Note it down and memorize it throughout the week. May we, King's Cross Church, have this same attitude to do whatever it takes for the gospel as we endeavor to be a family on mission with Jesus. Let's pray. God, you deserve all the glory. You absolutely do. And so, God, I pray that as we do our best to magnify who you are and what you've done, may you be gracious enough to speak to us, to empower us to live out what you're calling us to. God, ultimately, may we experience your love, your mercy, your joy, your grace, your... Just be delighted in you. 
because of what Jesus has done. Thank you so much. And in light of everything you've done for us, may we be willing to do whatever it takes for the sake of your fame and your glory and renown in this world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.